Hey there, welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's guest is Joav Vilner. Joav is the CEO of Walnut.io, the world's leading sales demo platform making interactive experiences that convert. Joav also pioneered the tech marketing category in Tel Aviv, in his home country of Israel, and several other cities, while writing about his experience for publications such as Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur, CNBC, and more. He is the author of the top-rated medium post, Godlike CMO, which is well worth a read and we discuss later in this interview. And he grew up and lives in Tel Aviv and previously lived in New York and London. In this interview, we unpack the Israeli mindset that gives founders and CEOs in Tel Aviv a distinct advantage. We discuss why you should not use your product when creating content for communities, and we learn how Yoav was able to convince some of Tel Aviv's most experienced talent to join his startup with very little traction. This is packed with insights for founders and CEOs leading growing startups, and I hope you enjoy our Yo, conversation. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So I thought a good place for us to start today would be you could tell us about a number that came up in one of our previous conversations. And that number is 8,200. What does that number mean to you? Why is it special? Yeah, we talked about Israeli tech. And one of the reasons that it's such a thriving community, you know, like this whole startup nation. And one thing that we know a lot of founders have in common here in, in Israel and in, in Tel Aviv is the fact that they all served in a very high-ranked intelligence unit in the army. So we have an accelerator for alumni of this unit, and we have VCs that are devoted to this unit and etc. So let's go into that a little bit, because it's quite exceptional that you find a real correlation between the founders and technical talent of a country and linked to one specific military unit. So what do you think it is about Unit 8200 that primes the people that go through it so well for entrepreneurial success later in life? And by the way, I was not there actually, but all of my friends were. You know, they do a lot of stuff that obviously we can't chat about, but we'll talk about the aspects of the roles, you know, so a lot of the roles are involved with programming and developing, coming up with creative ideas, working in high-paced environments, just like a startup. There are more very interesting units in the army that are related to computing, to software and hardware, but that's got to be like the core unit that people are often going afterwards to launch startups. There's an interesting correlation, as you said, between the environment that a startup requires and the environment that the military breeds and creates. You're pushed into these high-pressure environments. And a friend of mine, when I was living in Bali a few years ago, went through the West Point Recruitment Academy in the US, their foremost military institution. And they literally drop you into a real combat zone 
being responsible for about 20 troops with about 2 million worth of hardware under your responsibility. And so it's like the equivalent of being a first-time founder and saying, here's 20 employees to manage and here's 2 million in seed funding. Go ahead and build something. And the, the pressure, the intensity, the long hours, the need to make efficient decisions very quickly, you can start to see why, that, why there's a nice parallel between the Israeli military and the pedigree of founders that you have afterwards. Exactly. So I think one of the interesting things to take a step back from here is that you are a man who knows Tel Aviv very well. And Tel Aviv being the capital of Israel and its foremost city, I'd love to dig into what makes Tel Aviv unique as an ecosystem for building startups. And especially as you've also, for our listeners, you've also lived in London, you've lived in New York, you have exposure to these other Western hubs. And so I'd be interested in what do you think makes Tel Aviv different and what advantages do you think you have as a builder there versus another Western city? So I guess I would start with the people. You know, there was a research and the proximity that you have between people here in Israel the amount of calls or WhatsApp messages that you need to send to reach your target persona that you're trying to reach here is ridiculously low. Like people would help you. People would offer their help. Founders of billion dollar companies would offer you their help. Investors, VCs would just grab coffee with you to get to know you. Even if you're years away from launching something, if you're looking for clients for a new startup, friends of friends will introduce you. And it goes on and on. It's like a small and big community all at once. So you get a lot of help. Today, I'm in the place where I get the privilege of helping people. But when I just started and I was 22, I knew nothing about tech. I knew nothing about startups. I knew nothing about marketing. But people helped out. They pitched in. And you can, at a very early age, you can build your reputation. You can build your network. And like you said, I lived in London. I lived in Manhattan. It was much more difficult because people were more like, I don't know, everyone's busy, right? But it's a matter of you're busy and helpful, or if you're mm. busy and you're not um, devoting time to help others. I think that here's specifically something more um, warm about the people. And what do you think is it that makes the people so warm? Because there are smaller communities in the world where that warmth wouldn't necessarily exist. Just because you are a small number doesn't mean that everyone's helpful. So what do you think it is about the people of Tel Aviv that makes you so readily and, and willing to help other people in the ecosystem? It's some sort of a behavior structure, like it's actual, you know, it's in the, in the DNA, like you actually want to help. You actually mm. want to find time and be helpful. Meeting people I didn't have any connection to in New York was, was difficult. Um, mm. Meeting people in London that I didn't have a lot of connections to was difficult. But, you know, I also hear from a lot of, you know, startups that are coming here to Tel Aviv from everywhere in the world. I hear that they're having a much better time getting their stuff together, meeting the people, grabbing that unicorn company CEO for coffee or a beer and, you know, getting their insights, meeting mm five, six VCs in a week that they know they're going to waste time. They're not going to invest in your startup, but they definitely want to be there to support you, to tell you what they think about your idea, about your market, to try and connect you to their portfolio companies. Maybe they will be helpful and you create a circle. And now it's very dominant now in, in Tel Aviv that people of 
after army years, so like 22, 23, 24, you know, they're building themselves as personas. So they're hosting everyone on their podcasts. They're writing a book. They're creating a community to help people. The age gap is meaningless in Tel Aviv and the experience gap is meaningless. And this is something that mm. I think is really, it really accelerates a lot of young startups. It's such an interesting concept because coming out of a Western institution, I went to university in a city called Sheffield and a lot of university students here will go into what's called graduate schemes for two, three, five years. And I was looking at a graduate scheme when I originally wanted to go into creative advertising. I was 21, knew really nothing about the world, just that I enjoyed writing and thought I could find some passion in this industry. And I spoke to an account manager at an agency in London when I went to an open day. And I said, what's it like being an account manager, bright eyed, full of ideas and dreams? And he looks me in the eye and says, Ben, get used to having none of your ideas used for at least five years. And I thought, who wants that? I'm in my early 20s. I'm restless. I'm full of ideas. I want to be able to go and apply them. And if I'd been put into this agency with a very defined hierarchy, then all of my ideas would have just been wasted. And so I think it's very promising that you're able to be part of a system that doesn't just not have any stigma to people who are younger, but actually encourages the fostering of innovation in those younger minds. So some people would still be that type, like you described. I can promise you everyone will be very honest. Like some people are brutally honest in Israel, but sometimes that's what you need. Like if your idea for a startup is dumb and it's not going to work and someone really don't want you to spend your, you know, the next five, six, eight years of your life building something that, I don't know, maybe he tried to do and fail. Maybe he saw people failing. They're going to give you the actual truth and you can work with it. Like you can choose if to listen or not to listen, but you're going to get mm. the opportunity to do it. That is something I've heard actually about Israeli culture is that you are known for your honesty, shall we say, the bluntness. Where do you think that comes from? Why when you have gone to a London, for example, where someone here in the city might say, let's grab coffee and someone will look you in the eye and say, sure, I'd love to grab coffee of. And they know in their head they're never going to reach back out to you. Whereas it doesn't sound like that happens where you are. So what do you think it is about the place you are and about the culture you're a part of that fosters this brutal honesty? So I think that unlike other places where I lived, I think that people here, they don't forget where they came from. Mm. So they can have a $10 billion company now and they can be an admired founder and everything, but they started off somewhere, they failed and they failed again and people were there to support them. And I think they see it as a way to give back. I like this idea of not forgetting where you came from and that even though you might be successful, you're still willing to give back and to kind of reinvest. And one of the things that people might not know about you is that you're a serial introducer. You've gone through a phase of making multiple introductions per week and blocking out time just to facilitate your network. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think about social capital and what the role of these introductions are for you and why it's such an important intention for you to set each week. It came to a point where I was doing like bi-monthlies status updates on my Facebook account, which has a lot of people from the industry. And 
and these posts used to have like a few dozens of job listings, for example, in different tech companies. And whenever I posted them anonymously, like I would just hint who the company is and people would start approaching me and hundreds of people would approach me each time. And then I would facilitate, I would spend time on seeing if any of these people is a fit for any of the big startups that is looking for talent. And that's something that I have been doing for, obviously for free, it's agile is not my job, nor will it be. You know, last year I've helped about 40, 45 people find a really good job that way. A lot of people ask me, why do you do it? Like, it's such a waste of time. You do it for free. No one gets you anything. And honestly, I have no answer. Like I came, my career progressed into a point where a lot of startups ask me, hey, do you know someone for this? And to a point where a lot of talented people ask me, hey, do you know someone in that company that I can approach for hiring? And I just said, all right, so I'll just introduce. And the other thing is, of course, like, you know, startups and investors, startups and potential clients, service providers and startups. And honestly, you know, I like the phrase that you're using social capital. I actually have no idea why I'm doing it. I guess it just makes you feel good. There's also something interesting about how what you've said with Tel Aviv being this very virtuous ecosystem where people are willing to help each other out and the compounding effects of that. Because if you are a young builder and you meet a seasoned founder or CEO, 15 to 20 years experience in the city, and they go for a coffee with you off their own back, you're going to remember that. You're going to pass that on, especially if everyone around you is doing it. And so when you're the seasoned CEO and you have all this context, this information, and there's that young 20-something that you see at a pitch day or that your friend tells you about and they ask if you want to go for coffee, you're going to be much more likely to pass that on. And one of the best ways that we learn from each other is through these conversations. I've learned a lot from you just in the two conversations that we've had so far. And similarly, builders would do well to realize as the founder and CEO just how much they have to share. And that now we're at this interesting inflection point where you don't just have to share that one-to-one, but you can share that one-to-many. That's something I've noticed that you've done with your recent feature in Fast Company, where you were talking about as something we'll come to in just a little bit, how you instill this practice of curiosity and market awareness across the company. Yeah. So something I'd be interested in in digging into is the demographic of the average Israeli startup founder Yoav is actually, as you told me, more experienced. A lot of these founders are 40 to 50 years old, showing persistence that is not typical in the startup scene in an age where the young 20-something apex founder has been glamorized. What do you think fuels the fact that Israeli founders tend to be more mature? First of all, I think there's a huge wave of younger founders right now, which is something that I see not specifically, well, in Israel, obviously, but also in the US and other places, which is interesting, right? People that are like 23, 24, raising a couple of millions. And maybe it's something to do with the market being more founder friendly right now. So it's easier to Mm. start. But a lot of first timers are getting a chance now that they wouldn't get 10 years ago from VCs. And that's, that's something like that's got to be good for founders, assuming they have a good idea. In Israel, you have to remember that people start their life a little bit later than other people. If you go to college when you're 18, if you live in the US, in Israel, you would go to the army for three years at least. 
if you're an officer in the intelligence or whatever, you're going to be maybe spending five, six, seven years. Some people go and study. So that's another couple of years. So you can easily get to your 30s just launching your first thing. That's one thing that we got used to it. That's life. You got to do it. You got to go to the army. Otherwise, we would not have a country. And that's something that people here totally realize. Mm. So you, you equally see the people that are first-timers in their 20s and first-timers in their 30s and even onwards. And in terms of people that are, let's say, past their 40s and they're trying something for the first time. So there's a couple of move, movements and communities now in Israel to support that. You know, they give them like their connections, the networks they need, just like a regular startup accelerator, but they're focused on people in a specific age group. And another thing, I think most people here that have billion-dollar companies have failed before with a previous company, which have cost them, you know, about a decade of their life. And now they're dominating their industries and performing well. And it's that inflection point that I find so interesting, because when you said that last piece, the founders had a company that failed that cost them a decade of their life. That's an entire chapter that you're never getting back. There's a special decision there for someone to then say, actually, even though my last company failed, I'm going to apply those learnings into the next thing. And it's a good application of the idea that persistence beats resistance. It's often the the companies that are just able to outlast the competition, like Airbnb, when they had, do you know those sleeves that you used to hold baseball cards in? They used to carry credit cards around in them because they were so maxed out on their loans. And so for years, they were just struggling, hustling, hustling. And now, obviously, on the brink of an IPO, here we are. But it's the fact that they were able to outlast everyone else. And what's powerful as well here is that Israel as a country was only founded in the late 1940s. And so because people realize where they come from and that you're a proud and integral nation, then the work that you're doing is a reflection of that. And so unlike, for example, in the US, where the culture is much more fail forward and and fail fast, in Israel, what I'm hearing is that even if there is a big failure, we get up and we go again because that's what we do. And we are young enough to remember where we've come from and what it's like if we don't get up and go again. Yeah, totally. Most of my friends here in Tel Aviv that have successful founders, they're beasts. Like they would not give up. Nothing would get them down. If their market Mm. suddenly changes and their product is useless, they would pivot and they would raise more money and they would keep fighting. And now we have a lot of very successful companies and billion dollar companies and companies doing IPO. They had a very rocky start for five or six years, even more. Each one of them is a role model for me. Like, I I hope to be as persistent. That's an interesting topic, the idea of the role models. What do you look for as a role model for the stage you're at as a founder? So you have a few companies under your belt. You're definitely in the the experienced camp as opposed to the, the new founder. So for where you're at with building Walnut, who are the kinds of role models that you look up to and what are you looking to learn from them to reach your next level as a founder? So I have like this philosophy of learning everything from everyone. You know, you learn from people that have failed because their mistakes and the conclusions are worth gold. And you obviously learn from people that build huge companies because they have done something well. So I I really love meeting people, uh, learning, hearing, 
And of course, like you said, when there's a new generation of founders, also to give it back if I can. So right now we're creating a new wave in, in the sales space. And if you look at companies like HubSpot, that mm. besides being persistent, have actually defined the category they're in, like they've coined the term inbound marketing. They, they didn't just build a product, they built a movement around it. Mm. You know, the movement of HubSpot professionals, of HubSpot agencies, people that are paying good money, spending a few months to become a HubSpot expert, and they build like a total ecosystem that wraps around their product so also because I'm a marketing guy, everything they've done with marketing themselves is brilliant as far as I'm concerned. So that's one example of a company. And if you ask me, I would love to grab coffee with the founders and just hear about how it went. This is the type of people that I would really love to hear their experience. And perhaps the factor that's interesting in HubSpot there is that they have an ecosystem. They've been able to build a world around their product. They have the inbound conference where people come and speak about the applications of HubSpot. HubSpot users can meet each other. Agencies can collaborate, learn from each other from the platform. So unlike just being this software, which they might have started as, I don't actually know, but if they were just software, that's one application versus saying, come and join the HubSpot community writ large. How do you think about the the role of community in, in what you're building? And this would be a good time for you to share a little bit about Walnut and the product that you're building at the moment. I'd be interested to know if if how you're thinking about building community for your startup. Is that a community of Walnut users? Is that empowering other sales professionals, for example? What does that look like from your perspective? So I'm a fan of communities, also being a marketing guy. I love it. Like I think when products are good, they just like pull users to being like their ambassadors. And if you're providing real value and you're doing it right and you position it the right way, then people are going to be your community, even if you, and you wouldn't need to pay for it. You wouldn't need to work for it. Um, it would just happen. If you take a, you know, very successful startup in our space, a Gong, they have a huge community of salespeople that surrounds them and everything they mm. post, everything, you know, people share it, people talk about it because they gather super unique data. They really share their knowledge and they create a lot of noise. So it can happen in, in every space. So I had a marketing company when I was in my twenties and I had like 600 startups as clients. And some of the things that I've seen in common to where the most successful communities were, were that if you try not to build a community specifically for your product. So you build a community for a more like high level topic that's related to your product. You just got to have something in, in common with what your product is doing and with what the community might be interested in, but it, it's not your product, right? So could you give an example of that? If you have a product for SMBs to create their own branding, just for, you know, just making up something. You wouldn't want to do a community about branding necessarily because there's millions of them, but you might want to build a community that's helpful to SMBs in any way possible. And that way, first of all, you start with a very top level funnel of a big audience, mm -hmm. and then you can enlighten them, share, share knowledge with them, share content with them, don't sell your product. They will bring their friends because there's a common goal for SMBs to unite and to be better at something. And then if you happen to talk about branding for SMBs at some point, they're going to be all over you. 
But if you would start mm. with your product as the core of the community, then people would just see it as something promotional. There's an interesting kind of link to the work that Gong is doing. They're a, a sales intelligence platform for anyone who doesn't know. And so their AI helps deliver insights to sales teams so they can perform better. What I think is really interesting about the content that they're putting out on LinkedIn, and if you guys are interested in seeing a masterclass of how companies execute on LinkedIn, Gong's LinkedIn is absolutely top-notch. The interesting content is that they take insights from the Gong platform, but then turn it around to the sales professional so they can perform better at their job. So it's saying, for example, like on your discovery call, they might just making this up and they might say on the discovery call, don't demo the product because it closes your, your leads by X or make sure you use these words because it's going to impact your conversion rate by 10%. But you can see there how in that content, it's not about Gong. Gong is just facilitating the other salespeople. So I love this idea and community of having a higher level goal, figuring out where your community members want to get to, and then using the insights from your product and your expertise to help them get there, but not be the end in and of itself. It's just a means to an end. Exactly. If you look at the 80-20 rule, then 80% hard work, provide, you know, share your knowledge and give value. Eventually, when you reach that 20%, you can talk about yourself a little bit and they will already appreciate you. So it will be a good, a good relationship. I think there's an interesting segue here as well to go from the community and the role that a group of people play together to the role that a group of people play together in a company and the, the culture that you're building with Walnut as their CEO. Now, as we mentioned a little while ago, you had on Fast Company a uh, quote where you were talking about this strategy of creating market awareness in your team of your competitors and your wider landscape. I'd be interested in digging into how do you think about instilling this sense of curiosity for, across your team? Because how I see the system potentially falling down is if you as the CEO are the bottleneck on the inputs. So you're pasting articles in the Slack channel. Well, that's going to be exhausting after a week if you've got to stay on top of it. It has to be something that's organic from the ground up. So how do you think about fostering that curious culture at Walnut? So first of all, I have to say we're very privileged in Walnut to actually define a market. So there's not, not a lot of actual competition that we have. Uh, a few years into the future, obviously, we will have plenty, but by then we will be a big enough brand to, you know, have our say in the industry and have the market share, which is more interesting. I think that myself personally, I always know what my competition is doing. I always know the clients that are demoing the product to. I know what their employees are going through if they like, like their job, don't like their job. I know who has written about them and well. I know what the founders are talking about in social media. There's a lot of automation and sophistication that I bring into getting that knowledge. And you always get to be one step ahead if you know that. Every other week, we have an internal discussion in the company about what we saw competition doing wrong and we can learn from. Because eventually, if we have a similar product and a similar target audience, if they've done a mistake, we just got to know about it so we do not make that mistake. So we talk about you know conclusions. And yeah, you know, we have our creative ways, but I have to say that I'm very proud to how we are one step ahead of competition and all of our planning for, you know, the upcoming years 
is based on what we know the market actually needs. So let's talk about that last bit there of how your planning is based on what the market needs. So when you were setting out to validate Walnut, how did you figure out that A, there was a market here and B, this is something that they really want? Yeah, that's a very good and basic question that every founder needs to ask. So we did not build this company without talking to 60 or 70 VP cells in different companies, usually enterprise companies, usually from the US, some smaller startups because we wanted to see how different size companies are reacting to the same problem and solution. And only after we've got that validation, only then did we actually build the MVP. Still, we did not raise funds to build the MVP. We did not waste anyone's money. We just got the market to say, yeah, we want it. And then we showed them a very basic version of it. And they still said they want it. And only then did we launch the company. I like this idea of validate before you build. Make sure that they have they have interest. And I think this is something you can do as well with informational products. Before you're going to go ahead and write a book, create a landing page where you talk about the key messages. And then if you have buy-in, then you can say, okay, I'm going to write one chapter, see how that chapter goes. It's, it's a much more iterative process in that sense. Something that I'm, I'm getting a sense for as well is the pace at which Walnut moves. So before you even built the product, you'd gone through two rounds of validation and that's no mean feat to go through those steps. How do you think about setting the pace for your company as the CEO and how important to you is speed as a variable in your company's roadmap? My theory is the moment you launch your startup, like when you first announce it, you start to lose air, like you start to be burned out and you have to move really, really fast in order to get to the next milestones. And the milestones, you know, they can differ. So for you, it can be a million dollar income. For there, it can be an A round differs on what that could be, but you have to move super fast between the different milestones. Otherwise, uh, you're just going to be completely burned out. And it doesn't have just one reason from new competition you haven't thought of to market changes, to market crashes, to clients losing their money because there's Corona. You know, anything can happen as we've seen, but you have to move super fast. And I always favor speed over perfection. I think that you have to touch your market as quick as possible. I think that you need to talk to your customers and not stay away from it. I think that you need to bring a lot of value to the media to get a lot of PR for your startup without paying tons of money. I think that you need to hire, make quick hiring decisions, make quick firing decisions, which is tougher. So we really favor speed over everything. And how do you approach making quick hiring decisions? Because companies ultimately live or die from the employees that are working for them. How do you make sure that you're getting the right butts in the right seats while still moving quickly? Without having any actual explanation, we've managed to bring in the first 20 people for our team that are all like, you know, everyone is like a character in their, in their profession, right? Everyone like has such an impressive background, People here are like managing themselves. There's no micromanagement. They're building their strategies. You know, there's cooperation, transparency between people. And the minute that your team is built on top of that, then you can identify the DNA, the DNA in people maybe faster than others. Like if your culture starts on the right foot when you're still a young startup, down from like the first employee that you brought to your 20, to your 40, to your 100, 
Um, you learn to identify if it's the right fit for your DNA pretty quickly. It also probably has to do with being a first timer, second timer, third timer, because you just learn from your previous mistake. So for the first company that I had when I was in my early 20s, I've made a, every hiring mistake possible. I've hired one poor lady that I was trying to get her to do like three different roles in one just because I didn't know better. Um, mm-hmm. For other employees that we, we drafted, I was sometimes a negative CEO. I was like, you know, using words like this is really bad. You know, stuff that you don't want to tell your employees, even if you think um, you, you, you got to have like positive feedback. You got to tell them sure. what you have done. Otherwise, you got to tell them that everything's fine. The world did not crash because they've made that mistake, but it would be better for the next time. There's a lot of politics and a lot of psychology in how you communicate with people. And I think when I was a first time, I definitely have done every mistake possible. In my second company, it was probably better. And now I am very proud of the culture and DNA that we're building. So if you were to give advice to Yoav, the first time founder on hiring your major do's and don'ts and golden rules, what advice would you give him? Even if that magic would have happened, I would still tell him you got to make the mistakes because you would not learn from them. People do not learn from reading guides on Google or seeing videos on YouTube or talking to their friends. There's a huge difference between having your friend tell you about the mistakes they've done and you're like, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it was really something you shouldn't have done. But then in real life, in real time, when there's the high speed, velocity and pressure in a startup, until you actually do it yourself, you're not going to learn. So I would still tell myself, go ahead with your instincts and intuition, make mistakes, but you got to learn from them. I love that. Experience is the greatest teacher and there's no way around the fact that we have to take the hard path and, and learn from experience. Now, speaking from experience, one of the things you alluded to earlier is that a number of the early Walnut team are quite experienced. They have 10, 15 years experience, and they've left some pretty prestigious companies to come and join Walnut. As far as most startups go, that's definitely an exception. So what do you think it was about Walnut that enticed them to say yes to such an attractive value proposition and leave these other prestigious companies they'd been working at? So the first people we brought in, which I'm very proud of, um, before raising the money, were people that we have worked with in the past. So it was kind of like the close circle. Each of us tried and succeeded uh, in pulling in people that really wanted to be part of our founding team. So that's one thing that we've done, right? My co-founder, CTO, you know, most of the R&D department that we have are people that worked for him in different companies where he managed and had an executive role. So it's like an ongoing event. Like every time we see another talent from our network that we chat to and we think that would be a perfect fit, we just try and see if we can pull him here. We've had a Mm. crazy success rate in doing that. Um, so I totally attribute the fact to just, you know, knowing the people from previous experiences. I think that when in the first time that you're launching your thing and you don't know anyone, super difficult to build a strong founding team. Like either you have the best investors in the world that have believed in you, which maybe would make it a little bit easier, but you have to have some previous network and experience. What advice would you have for a young, ambitious 20-something who is not sure of their career path, but they know that they want to build something. 
and I'm going to give you some constraints here. Would you advise them to go down the route of starting their own company, even though they might not have the network and the experience, which, as you say, might be difficult to have the founding team? Or would you advise them to get a job at an existing startup or an existing company, build the experience, the network, and then start the company later on? So one of the phrases that I use often when people ask for my advice is, first of all, quit your current job always as a ground rule, even if it makes no sense. If you're even considering to launch something, you're in the wrong job. And eventually you're mm. going to leave it. You might as well just leave it now and not waste another year. The other thing is that if you can launch something, even if it's going to suck, even if it's going to not work, if you're going to have a hard time raising money and you're going to have a hard time drafting employees, if you're in the early 20s, that's the perfect time to do all that. Because when you get a little bit older, you're going to be much, much better in actually launching something, you know, more like in a sure, better sure. timing. So that's one thing. If you don't have an ambition to launch something, like if you're with the healthy 90% of people and you're not uh, passionate about launching a startup, which is perfectly fine, it's not for everyone, just find a key role in a startup that you're passionate about and find a role that will suit like the progress of your career. So if your dream is to be a CMO of a tech company, you know, just find a role as a whatever, head of marketing, content writer, SEO manager, it doesn't matter. You can roll with your experience all the way to being a CMO in, in a few years, but you have mm. to start somewhere. I like that. I also like that you called out that starting a startup isn't necessarily for everyone. You can still have a very prosperous, successful career being the right-hand woman or right-hand man to somebody else in another department that you love. It, we don't all have to be glorified into this one founder CEO archetype. There's there's infinite roads to the top of the mountain. Now, one of the um, the roles that you just alluded to there was the CMO, and you have an excellent medium post called Godlike CMO, which went viral a while ago, where you break down the attributes, the critical qualities of a CMO. And there's four qualities that CMOs can't do without. And the one that came the top of that list was team management. So I'd be interested to hear from your perspective, what do you think that C-suite execs, let's broaden it here to the C-suite, how do they need to be thinking about managing teams, especially as we go into this more decentralized remote working environment? Right. So that post was something I just wrote angrily because so many CMOs came to me asking if I can hook them up with a job. And so many startup founders came to me with asking to meet a CMO. And then I just started introducing people. And I, no I noticed even though the opportunities were amazing, the talent was amazing, nothing was coming out of it. And I was like, maybe there's not, maybe there's a gap in the expectations, you know, between the CEO and the potential CMO that no one's is trying to fill. And I just went on Medium and I wrote a post and I called it the godlike CMO. I wrote it in like 15 minutes of being mad. And it ended up being like on the front pages of Reddit and Medium and everywhere possible. And I got like thousands of messages and, you know, founders were like, yeah, this is exactly what I need to know. And mm -hmm. CMOs were like, you know, right, maybe we, we need to change the approach that we're taking towards the interviews that we're going. And the reason that team management is first is because in marketing, it's not worth a lot if you can't really connect the different channels in the right way. You know, building a brand, for example, it's something a little bit vague that's hard to measure. And it's a puzzle that's combined of a thousand pieces. 
And you can't be a good CMO without knowing how to manage the person that's taking care of the organic traffic and how to sync it with the person that's running the acquisition and how to operate your PR agency and what to think of for your next social media, you know, marketing campaign and et cetera, et cetera. And if you launch something on Product Hunt, whatever you do, you have to know how to manage team. One of the conclusions of the post is that a CMO does not have to know everything. Like I'm, I'm literally saying it, that founders should not look for a CMO that knows everything because they would probably suck at everything. They got to find a CMO that's really, really good in two or three aspects of marketing, has a very impressive background, and they would need to be good managers. So they need to bring people for every different role. They need to connect it like a machine. And that makes a perfect CMO as far as I'm concerned. Interesting. So it's not having the deep context on each and every one of the channels, but more being able to see how the puzzle pieces fit together. And more importantly, have the people, the heads of department who are running each of those pieces, make sure that they are aligned behind a cohesive marketing strategy. Exactly. So the CMO in in this case actually takes the role of the conductor. And that's the, the interesting thing is like, rather than you being the person who's playing the instrument and having like very deep expertise as the musician, you just understand that the way that the trumpet needs to sound or the way that the cello needs to come across and, and bring everyone under your umbrella. I also think that there's a lot of potential for CEOs and for founders today to put the people who are in their orchestra on the spotlight and talk about the great work they've done. So at Walnuts, talking about your head of marketing, Emmanuel, who's crushing it with the Walnut podcast and your LinkedIn and all of this, like putting the spotlight off of you and onto another team member, it also shows real humility for you as a leader. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how you build up and, and acknowledge and show appreciation for the employees that are powering Walnut. Oh yeah, we, we have an amazing team and we celebrate everything, you know, happening, uh, the good things. Obviously we celebrate, we amplify it and everyone in the company knows when something good has happened and when someone was over delivering, when someone has reached an important KPI that we were all waiting for, everybody's a part of it. Sometimes, you know, in the Tel Aviv office that we have, which has, has the most people, we go out and, you know, celebrate if we have to post-corona, pre-corona, whatever, if things are open. You know, on our Slack channels, we amplify everything that we can. And it's not because we want to fake a good environment. It's because we really, as founders, we're really, really happy with what they've done. We're really happy with them being proud of, the, of themselves. You know, self-appreciation is your one of the main things when you're part of a company. Like, you have to know that you're good. So that's what we're building as a, as a DNA. Why do you think it's important as a company to know that you're good? So what, what can you offer employees when you're building a new startup? There's a salary that's usually lower than the average market. They would get paid if they would work in an enterprise company. There's equity, which is really cool. And if you believe in the company, that can change your life, maybe. And you get it in a higher dose than you would in a bigger company. But equity is a number for like the next four, five, 10 years. It's just a number. Like it's not something that you go in the grocery store and, and use. So you're left with your own fulfillment, knowing that you're doing a good job, 
knowing that everything that you do takes the company a lot of steps forward with hearing appreciation and hearing feedback. I think this is what people wake up for. Like they need a mission and you can't really be a negative CEO like I was three rounds ago because people would just not wake up in the morning and come to the office for you. I think that's a great, a great way of phrasing it is that employees don't just need to be appreciated, but they need to feel like they're contributing to the mission, to the company purpose. And so re-articulating as the founder, as the CEO, this is where we're heading and this is how you have helped us get there or this is how Ben supported us in this piece, I think is, is really important. Now, the, the last question we have for you today is actually a question from one of our listeners, David Knorr. And David Knorr said to us on Twitter, if a culture is defined by the behaviors you're willing to tolerate, what have been some of the more challenging behaviors you've had to tolerate and why? Interesting. Not in this company, but I, I had an employee once that was not honest. And that's something that I just could not work with. I think mm. that honesty is like just in human beings, not just in, you know, in the workplace. It's like the first thing if you don't trust someone, don't hire someone. And if you don't trust your boss, don't work for them. Something's going to explode sometime and it's going to be ugly. I love people that are honest. I love people that are direct. These are the type of people that I like working with. But besides that, you know, besides people doing something as bad, I've tolerated a lot of different behaviors. Let's say you hired someone, you thought they're going to be a star. It ended up not being true. They have ended up being like an average employee. I had a lot of cases where I just worked with it. Like I was not so quick to file. I was quick to educate and I was mm. quick to train. There's a lot of people that I have right now working in amazing startups in executive roles that I'm really privileged to have been the first one to give them a chance and to take them through a specific path. And mm. probably it's not a small number. It's like it's a few dozens. So this is something that I'm personally proud of. And also that this brings us very nicely full circle to what we spoke about at the start of the, the conversation around Israeli culture. It, it seems to me that honesty in many ways breeds trust. And because Tel Aviv has a culture of honesty, it breeds trustworthiness and means that people are able to build successful relationships. And when life is defined by who you know, the people that you have access to to learn from are that much more vibrant as a group. Well, Yov, this has been a lot of fun and I'd love to end if you could tell our listeners where they can keep up with you online and where they can follow your journey. Yeah, so I share a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, you know, on Twitter, LinkedIn, it's Yov Vilner. I know it's a tough name, but you know, it's written here somewhere so you can just see it. Our website, walnut.io, we share a lot of content that we think sales teams can enjoy. And, you know, just if you need me, just shoot over a message or an email and I'll, I'll get back to you. Fantastic. Thanks, Yov. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.